0: Good morning. morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. I I originally was going to do the whole chapter, but actually going to do verses 1 through 6. That is plenty uh, for for us this morning. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Holy Scripture says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is God's holy word and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would nourish us with these holy words and that you would strengthen us by your grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to begin by wa- walking through the passage. First, the Lord says to Abram, fear not. Fear not or do not be afraid is one of the most frequent commands in all of Scripture. Do not be frightened, the Lord said to Joshua. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, Jesus said to his disciples. Do not fear those who kill the body, Luke 12, 4. Do not be anxious about your life, Luke 12, 22. This command, fear not, is relevant in all kinds of circumstances. In Genesis chapter 14, which we looked at last week, Abram had experienced a great military victory over four kings who constituted the Mesopotamian alliance. One might assume that Abram would not be disposed to fear after such a great victory but the truth is is that the human heart is very frail and Abram might have been tempted to fear that that alliance would regroup and retaliate. We often experience fear because our actual or anticipated circumstances overwhelm us and seem to be against us. We are also apt to experience fear over uncertainty as we look out to the future. We can easily get afraid of what might happen or what might go wrong tomorrow. In Abram's case, he probably had some anxiety concerning the future because he had no offspring, and that comes out here in these early verses. Any human being who, who wants to have children but for one reason or another is unable to do so might have angst about it. But the angst of Abram's childlessness was compounded by the fact that the Lord had promised to make of Abram a great nation, Genesis 12 2. And the Lord had promised to give all the land of Canaan to Abram and to his offspring what offspring what great nation when and how would this come about like Abram do do you know that God's hand is upon your life that he has called you into fellowship with his son that he desires to glorify his name and advance his kingdom through your life and yet at the same time you are aware of the gap between the high calling of the Lord upon your life and your own limited strength or your own feeble sense of how it's all gonna work out then hear the Lord say to you fear not my son fear not my daughter of course the command to not be afraid is not given in isolation The Bible is careful to connect commands with reasons and incentives to obey those commands. The Lord's command to fear not is accompanied by the compelling reason, I am your shield, still in verse 1. The Lord's shielding presence is always the compelling reason why the Lord's people should not be afraid. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9 Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Before Jesus told his disciples to not let their hearts be troubled or afraid, he had just told them, Peace, I leave with you my peace i give to you i am your shield i am your defender i am your protector i am your refuge i am your tower of safety the lord is promising that he will be with abram and watch over abram and see that no ultimate evil will befall abram although abram was very rich genesis 13:2 wealth was not Abram's shield. Wealth can evaporate in a single hour. The Lord is Abram's shield. Although Abram had 318 trained fighting men under his direction, as we saw last week in chapter 14, they were not Abram's shield. An army of men was not Abram's shield. The Lord is Abram's shield. Abram did not defeat the Mesopotamian alliance because of superior armed forces. Abram won the victory because the Lord delivered Abram's enemies into his hand, Genesis 14, 20. Scripture says, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love. That's from Psalm 33. The Lord is the protector of all who call upon His name. His shielding presence is always the compelling reason why we should be unafraid as we navigate the highs and lows of everyday life. But there's more. This compelling reason is accompanied also by an expansive promise. Your reward shall be very great. The Lord protects His people in order to lead them into the very great reward that He has appointed for them. The Lord guards His people through the valley of the shadow of death so that after they have feasted in the presence of their enemies, they may ultimately dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord's protecting presence, is a purposeful presence that leads his people to a place of abundance. Abram will become a great nation. Abram will become the father of a great multitude. Abram and his offspring will inherit the promised land. Abram will become a means of blessing to the whole world and as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 8, Abram the Hebrew will feast with many Gentiles from the east and from the west in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew eight eleven. The Lord shields his people on their pilgrimage to everlasting joy. The Lord protects us in order to prosper us, not in the cheap way that the world thinks about prosperity, but in the way of true riches that will last forever. The Lord shields us in order to satisfy us, not with bread that will perish, but with a life and a future that never ends. The Lord God is the refuge and rewarder of His people. Scripture says in Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The command to fear not is essentially a command to trust the Lord. Trust me, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. As we move to verses 2 to 3, Abram seeks to understand God's promise in light of his childlessness. This command to trust the Lord is given to us in the thick of real life, in the thick of circumstances that often seem contrary to God's promise. Abram knows That the promise of Genesis 13, 15, that his offspring will inherit the land is tied to actually having offspring, but he doesn't have any offspring yet. Will Abram trust God's promise, or will Abram trust his circumstances? The issue of Abram's childlessness now comes up in verses 2 and 3. Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In verse 3, Abram correctly states, you have given me no offspring. But Abram seems resigned to the mindset that since the Lord has not given him offspring in the past, then the Lord also won't give him offspring in the future. Do you ever do that? Do you ever operate on the assumption that the future is constrained by the past? Do you ever think, since God has not done that thing in my life before, I don't expect him to do it in the future either? Abram seems resigned to the prospect that a household servant rather than a son will be his heir. In verse 2, Abram had asked, what will you give me? In the context of the faith and obedience that Abram has already demonstrated in chapters 12 to 14, I take this to be an honest question. In other words, not a skeptical question, but an honest one. Abram believes that the Lord will reward him somehow, in some way, but he's not sure about the details and he doesn't expect it to involve a son. Here also, Abram seems resigned to the mindset that I continue childless means... I will continue childless. What message resounds in your heart? Does the message of God's promise resound in your heart even when the circumstances seem to be against you? Or does the noise of difficult circumstances make it hard for you to find comfort and strength in God's promise? Do you trust in God's ability or do you feel hemmed in by your own inability? Do you have a confident expectation of God showing up in powerful ways or do you think that past weakness, past barrenness, past emptiness, past unfruitfulness defines the future? In response to Abram's observation and questions, the Lord reiterates and clarifies his his promise in verses 4 and 5. The word of the Lord had come to Abram in a vision in verse 1, and now in verse 4, the word of the Lord comes to him again. Over and against Abram's mindset that his servant Eliezer, rather than a non-existent son, would be his heir, the Lord speaks directly to this matter. This man, verse 4, Eliezer of Damascus, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. Although the prior promises about Abram's offspring assumed that Abram would have physical descendants, now the Lord shines the spotlight directly on this matter. The Hebrew phrase translated, your very own son, literally means one who will come from your own body. This is a a physical descendant, a son. In terms of Abram's offspring, the one who will come from his own body was only the was only the tip of the iceberg. Yes, Abram would have a son, but through that son, he would come to have innumerable offspring. And this, this brings us to the object lesson accompanied by another promise in the next verse. And the Lord brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then the Lord said to Abram, so shall your offspring In chapter 13, the Lord had told Abram that his offspring would be as innumerable as the dust of the earth, Genesis 13, 16. Now in chapter 15, the Lord tells Abram that his offspring will be as innumerable as the stars of heaven. This effectively answers Abram's question, what will you give me from verse 2? The Lord will give Abram a son and through that son, a vast multitude of sons and daughters. Your reward shall be very great indeed. Whenever the Lord reveals himself and his promises to us, he is always summoning us to believe. Trust me, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Trust me, Abram. Your very own son shall be your heir, and your offspring shall be as numerous as the stars. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, Proverbs 3.5. Do not lean on your own reasoning, or on your own experience, or on your own expectations. Instead, lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Familiar words from Isaiah 40. And to the one who is childless, the Lord can grant a child that changes the course of history. Fear not, Abram. Trust me. Abram's response in verse 6 is spot on. And he believed the Lord and on account of abram's faith abram was counted righteous and he the lord counted counted it to him as righteousness now through this god ordained moment in genesis 15:1 to 6 which was written down for our benefit we discover the secret of having a right and healthy relationship with the Lord. We need to linger here and ponder what it means to have a right and healthy relationship with the Lord. By the way, is having a right and healthy relationship with the Lord important to you? It ought to be the single most important matter that occupies your heart. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world only to lose his own soul? How would it benefit you to have a measure of fame, fortune, and comfort in this present world only to be cast into the outer darkness on the last day? To what advantage is it to be industrious and knowledgeable and religious only to have the Lord turn to you on the day of judgment and say, depart from me, I never knew you. The greatest commandment in all of Scripture is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. If we excelled in a hundred other things, but were utterly impoverished and bankrupt in the most important thing, that would be a total loss, and we would come to ruin. But how does a person get a right and healthy relationship with the Lord. Notice how I put the question. I did not say, how does a person who already has a right and healthy relationship with the Lord deepen that relationship and demonstrate it in everyday life? That's a great question, but that's not the question I'm addressing today, because that's not the question that Genesis 15, 1 to 6 addresses. The question that our passage addresses is, how does a person get a right and healthy relationship with the Lord in the first place? What is the foundation of a right and healthy relationship with the Lord? Our passage teaches us that three interrelated things are foundational to a right and healthy relationship with the Lord. They are, number one, hearing the Lord's promise. Number two, believing the Lord. And number three, receiving the gift of righteousness. Let's take these three one at a time. First, hearing the Lord's promise. So many people are in bondage to their circumstances. For I continue childless. So many people are in bondage to what has or has not happened in the past. You have given me no offspring. So many people are in bondage to their own human reasoning that works on the basis of what their eyes can see. A member of my household will be my heir. So many people are in bondage to worldly wealth and worldly power, but the Lord God Almighty is not bound by worldly resources. The Lord God Almighty is not bound by our circumstances or our conjectures of how things might go. The Lord is sovereign over our past, present, and future. The Lord God Almighty is unlimited in power. He calls all the stars by name and directs the details of our lives. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Out of nothing, the sovereign creator breathed life into lifeless clay. He is also able to give life to the dead. He calls into existence things that formerly did not exist. And he is able to open the barren womb. The sovereign Lord comes to us through his word and makes promises. When God sets a promise before us, he is inviting us into a future far better than any future we could have without him. Promises, by their very nature, are future oriented. The Lord promised Abram, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and make your name great. Your very own son shall be your heir, and as are the stars that you cannot number, so shall your offspring be. The Lord promised Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land. Joshua 1, 5, and 6. The Lord promised His people, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Or consider this promise given through the prophet Micah. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. Here's a promise that Jesus made. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, And my burden is light. The the future orientation of God's promises are evident through, through the phrases where God tells us what will happen, what He will do, or what shall come to pass. Every single one of you lives your life every day on the basis of promises. The only question is whose promises? What promises? The book of Hebrews refers to the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13, sin is is deceitful. Sin deceives us by making the pathway of sin look more desirable than the pathway of righteousness. Someone has rightly said, people don't sin because they have to. People sin because they want to. People sin because sin promises them something that they want. Eve was deceived into thinking that the forbidden fruit was the pathway to a better godlike existence. Cain was deceived into thinking that a future without Abel was better than a future with Abel. The men at Babel were deceived into thinking that the Tower of Babel, once built, would bring them security and glory. Every single day, you believe promises. Whose promises? So, second, believing the Lord. Hearing His promises is first, now believing the Lord. The big question is whether or not we're going to believe the infinitely powerful and sovereign God who speaks to us. You are created in God's image, and as God's image bearer, you are hardwired to hear from God to hear from God through His Word, and to respond to Him in faith. That's how you're made, but because of sin, you are handicapped in your capacity to hear and believe His promise. So what are you going to believe? God's promises or the protests of your own heart? God's counsel or your circumstances? God's definitive words or the distortions of reality that are spun about by the serpent. Eve believed the serpent and plunged herself into devastation. Cain believed the lie and brought upon himself great punishment. The men at Babel trusted in themselves and their works came crashing down. Lot, as we saw in chapter 13, was captivated by the external allurements of the Jordan Valley and got himself into a world of trouble. But a different heart was found in Abram. And he believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 6 testifies to the truth that's found all throughout Scripture that believing the Lord is foundational to having a right and healthy relationship with Him. Frankly, how can you have a right and healthy relationship with anyone If you doubt the other person's trustworthiness, truthfulness, and goodness. If you think that someone else is unreliable, or lying to you, or seeking to ruin you, then you are not going to have a right and healthy relationship with that person. So here's the question. Have you come to believe that the Lord is trustworthy, reliable, and good? have you come to believe that the Lord is for you and not against you? Have you come to believe that the Lord has made life-giving promises to you for your good? David said in Psalm 62, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock. My refuge is is God. And then after saying that, David turns to everyone and says, in the next verse, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Psalm 62, eight, <clears throat> The Lord declared through the prophet Jeremiah chapter 17, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a, a tree planted by water that sends out its root by the stream and does not fear When heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Over and over again, Scripture testifies to the fact that believing God, trusting God, having faith in God is central to having a healthy and right relationship with Him. The intellectual pursuit of theological understanding is no substitute for a heart that feasts on the promises of God. The religious pursuit of prayers, liturgies, holy days, sacred assemblies, worship services, is no substitute for a heart that pulsates with confidence in God's Word. The social pursuit of community, neighboring, friendship, soup kitchens, deeds of mercy, and volunteer work is no substitute For a living faith that banks on everything God has pledged to do. Without this living faith, the heart remains far from God. But with this living faith, all of life is sanctified and set apart for God. The Gospel of John testifies, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The book of Acts testifies, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The letter to the Romans testifies the righteous shall live by faith. The letter to the Ephesians testifies for by grace you have been saved through faith. The first letter of Peter testifies that by God's power we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The first letter of John testifies that we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Multiple passages in the New Testament teach the priority of faith and love in that order. We always thank God, beginning of Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Second Timothy 1, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. First John three twenty three, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. The point of all this is simply to say that a right and healthy relationship with God is not something that we create by our own hard work. It's not a human achievement. It's not because we meditated enough, or memorized enough, or gave away enough, or prayed enough, or did enough good things, or knew enough, or attended church enough, or acted loving enough. Getting a right and healthy relationship with God is not the result of our piety, diligence, or sacrifice. Getting a right and healthy relationship with God is not the outcome of an impressive record of service and good deeds. Perhaps you've come to service this morning, and you have a sense that something is missing in your relationship with God. I would say to you, if that's you, I would say to you that you should seriously consider the possibility that the thing that's missing in your relationship with God is the main thing. It's possible that deep down you don't actually trust the Lord. You're quite willing to learn about the Lord, talk about the Bible, attend church services, sign up for church activities, work for the Lord. And yet you wonder why the yoke isn't easy and the burden isn't light. Could it be that you don't know Him? Believe Him? Trust Him? Stop trying to live a pseudo-Christian life. You know, the counterfeit Christian life in which it all depends on you and your resolve and your strength and your busyness. Instead, discover the freedom and power of the true Christian life which comes from the from believing the God who says over and over again, I will, I will bless you. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. I will give you this land. I will carry you. Isaiah 46.4. I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46.10. I will supply every need of yours. Philippians 4.19. I will raise you up on the last day. John 6.40. I will give you rest. Now what you've got to do, you've got to hear and believe the promise when God says, I will. Finally, the third consideration from verse 6 is this. Verse 6 proclaims the good news that God reckons us righteous on account of our faith, not according to our works. Up until now, I have spoken generally about having a right and healthy relationship with God, but now as we come to the end of verse 6, we've got to see something very specific that Scripture is teaching us where it says, the Lord counted it to him, that is Abram's faith, the Lord, the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. What do you suppose it would take for the Lord God Almighty to look at a man and say, this man is completely justified in my sight, completely acceptable, completely righteous and well-pleasing? Some people suppose that in order to be justified, you must first jump through the right religious hoops, such as circumcision in the Old Testament, or baptism in the New Testament, or extensive fasting and prayer, or enrollment in a school of discipleship. If you perform these things, then God will surely look with favor upon you, right? Wrong. Some people suppose that in order to be justified, you must first experience a certain amount of internal transformation. You've got to get your heart straightened out. you got to get your heart set in a new direction, leading to new and better habits in life. And you have to accumulate a long track record of actual obedience so that you are actually and consistently righteous in your everyday conduct. Then, after all that, God will declare you righteous, Right? wrong. Some people suppose that in order to be justified, you must make atonement for your sin. You must feel enough anguish and sorrow and grief over your sin. Beat yourself up a little bit more. You must compensate for all of your past wickedness with righteous deeds. You must suffer through acts of penance in order to satisfy the demands of justice. You you must make restitution for all your misdeeds. And after all that, God may eventually decide that you have done enough and reckon you righteous in his sight, right? Wrong. Pay attention. Pay attention. Abram was counted righteous in Genesis 15, 6. He was not circumcised until Genesis 17, 24. And the Apostle Paul writes about that in Romans 4. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised, Romans 4, 11. A man is justified by faith, not by religious ritual even a God-ordained one. Further, Abram was counted righteous long before that costly act of obedience when the Lord commanded him to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice on the mountain. Of course, in the end, Isaac wasn't sacrificed, but a ram was provided in Isaac's place. But Abram's willingness to offer up his son demonstrated his love for the Lord, demonstrated his faith, demonstrated his righteousness. But that costly act of obedience was not the basis of Abram's righteousness. A man is justified by faith, not by impressive acts of obedience. In fact, Abram, we have seen here, Abram was in the habit of learning to walk in obedience to God's commands. It is the nature of faith to express itself in obedience. That's true. But Genesis 15.6 does not say that the Lord counted Abram's obedience as righteousness. No. Genesis 15.6 says that the Lord counted Abram's faith as righteousness. A man is justified by hearing and believing God's promise, not by walking in obedience. We can also say that Abram was counted righteous before he was morally perfected. Abram will act foolishly in chapter 16 and again in chapter 20. A man is justified by faith, not by being morally perfected. As long as you think that attaining to a righteous status in God's sight is something that you can accomplish, you're missing the point. It is not by religious ritual. It is not by heroic or sacrificial acts. It is not by moral improvement. It is not by obedient actions that a sinner is counted righteous in God's sight. As Scripture says, One is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, Romans 3.28. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, Galatians 2.16. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, Romans 10.9 and 10. When God justifies a sinner, God does not treat that sinner according to what his sins deserve. God does not count that sinner's sins against him. And God clothes that sinner with the free gift of righteousness. And God treats that sinner as someone who is perfectly acceptable in the court of heaven. There is nothing for a sinner to do except to believe Romans 4.5, and to the one who does not work, stop working, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, Romans 4.5. This gift of righteousness, this divine decree that the sinner is justified, approved, and accepted in the sight of God is the ultimate fulfillment of the earlier promise, fear not Abram, I am your shield. If God was only willing to shield Abram from external threats but wasn't willing to shield Abram from the consequences of his his sin and from the demands of divine justice, then Abram would be in deep trouble. But as it is, God shields His people from His own wrath against sin. God shields His people from the law of sin and death. God shields His people from condemnation, final judgment, and everlasting hell. In order to accomplish this, God sent His dear Son to be our great shield and defender. As the Apostle wrote in Romans 4, Abram was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 4, 21 to 25. Jesus is the truly righteous one who took upon himself the consequences of our sin, who satisfied the demands of God's justice and who broke apart the power of death. That's why we sing, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed In righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Have you discovered the free gift of righteousness that comes through faith and faith alone? Only believe the Lord and he will prove himself to be your shield, defender, protector, and friend. Only believe the Lord, and He will prove Himself to be your benefactor, rewarder, shepherd, and guide. Only believe the Lord, and He will prove Himself to be your justifier, your righteousness, your everlasting refuge, and peace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would despair of any ability on our own to bring ourselves into a right relationship with you. I pray that you would give us the grace to look away from the mountain of our sins and that you would give us the grace to look to Mount Calvary where the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, bled and died to take away our sin. In his name we pray, amen.